Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, July the 11th, 2022. It is currently 5.13 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas, for what may very well be my last live broadcast ever, because this is how it all ends. It ends with the power going off here in West Texas when it's 105 degrees outside because the power grid is failing and it doesn't look good. Okay. Now maybe, maybe that's a little bit of hyperbole. I understand. I at least have to jump in immediately and say, I'm using a little bit of hyperbole because if I just continue joking around, someone's going to be like, you're over dramatic and you're okay. Calm down, having a little bit of fun, but I am a little bit concerned that the power could go off in the middle of this live broadcast, would be, which would be extremely frustrating. But if, for some reason, the broadcast comes to a very abrupt end, you know why. Here is the notification that we received just a little while ago. Here we go. I need to set the thermostat to 80 degrees. All right, I need to set the thermostat to 80 degrees. I need to use ceiling fans to try to stay cooler. I need to turn off and unplug all non-essential lights and appliances. I need to turn off the pool pump. I need to avoid using large appliances such as ovens, uh, washing machines, etc. Businesses should minimize the use of electric lighting and electric consuming equipment and large consumer uh, large consumers of electricity like factories or or any large businesses, should either reduce all non-essential production processes as soon as possible or just shut down. Those are some of the things we're being told right now, but they say the power grid is failing and it's not a good situation. So I don't know if we're going to lose power, but it's not, it's, it's, I mean, in all seriousness, when it's 105 degrees outside, That's not a good thing, all right? That's not a good thing, especially for those who are elderly, people with certain health conditions. It's not a good thing. In all seriousness, it's not a good thing. So I don't know what's going to happen, but um, I I have all the lights off, all right? So I have that. So, um, and well, we're live on the air and we're going to do as much as we can. So are, are you ready to do that? All right, so here's where we are. We are doing a series as you, well, depending on what, which app you're listening to, you may not know what we're doing. We're in the middle of a series on Philippians chapter three, verse 10. We have put forth our own. And when I say our own, this podcast's own, can we say interpretation of Philippians chapter three, verse 10, that was, that was put forth by one of our listeners. Someone just said, I can't set my thermostat to 73. Anything higher than that just will kill me now. Exactly. I agree. So, uh, yeah. And that's someone who lives in the local area. I, I mean, it's, it's just not good. I, I can't imagine right now. Just walking outside right now, it's like you open the door and you're like, that's, that, you, you wake up. I mean, you open the door and you black out and you're like, what, what just happened? Well, you almost died. You almost walked outside. Are you crazy? Well, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I opened the front door and third degree burns. I mean, okay, maybe again, maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but yeah, it's not good. But we're in, we are working on Philippians chapter three, verse 10. We started, I, I spent about an hour struggling with the text, trying to figure out exactly how can we interpret this in a way that actually means something. Not that we just say a lot of spiritually sounding words, but it's something meaningful, something tangible. 
One of the listeners suggested an interpretation. I took it and fleshed it out. So now I just sometimes refer to it as our interpretation for this podcast. So we gave a, an interpretation. And then I said, you know what we'll do? Since that's kind of our hypothesis, kind of our theory, what we'll do is we'll take, we'll just find some random sermons on Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 that will offer a different perspective, a different interpretation, and we'll use that to challenge ours, right? To challenge what we've come up with. So to see, well, okay, now, okay, now I see where we went wrong. Okay, I see. Okay, that makes more sense. Okay, we'll we'll throw out ours and we will embrace this these other interpretations. However, we reviewed two sermons, basically almost four hours of broadcasting, and guess what we found? Well, we found two sermons that didn't even bother to deal with the text, which seems to indicate to me that a lot of people don't know what to do with the text. A lot of people will see some phrases, but they don't really know how to actually interpret the text in any meaningful way. So today, we are reviewing another sermon. And the reason we're reviewing this one is because someone emailed me and said, hey, here's my interpretation. Here's an amazing sermon that's a great example of exposition. It actually deals with Philippians 3.10. And hey, it agrees with, with the emailer's viewpoints. In other words, this will give you a different viewpoint and it's actually a sermon that deals with the text. And I'm like, okay. So we started reviewing it and we've made it 16 minutes in. Let me just briefly explain to you Philippians chapter 3, and where we are. Philippians chapter 3, all right? It's been a crazy day, but we're going to make the most of this, all right? As long as I've got power, we're going to see how much, how many live broadcasts we can get in. But we're going to try to finish this review. This one, I may have to go longer, because if the power is still working and everything is great, I think it makes mo more sense to just continue on. If everyone stops listening, if everyone complains it's too long, to me, why risk it? If I still got power, keep going until I'm done reviewing. So that's what we're going to do. But so let me just try to explain the two views of interpreting Philippians 3.10 that we're dealing with right now. There may be others, but these are the two that we're working on. One, as presented by one of the emailer or listeners who emailed me today or yesterday and said, here's my interpretation, and then emailed me today and said, here's a sermon that agrees with my interpretation. We've got that interpretation, and then we've got the interpretation of this podcast that was once again presented by a listener that I thought made very good sense, and we are going with it, and we fleshed it out. So here it is, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul basically explains his life before he puts his faith in Jesus Christ. He explains how religious he was, how moral he was, how righteous he was, how he was doing all of these wonderful things, right? However, he was trusting in that fleshly, earthly righteousness, that righteousness of human action, that righteousness of human works. He was trusting in that. And at some point, after you read Philippians 3, verses 1 through uh, 6, after he goes through and describes all of these wonderful things about him and all of these things that he was doing, he realizes in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. He explains that at some point, all of these things that I was holding on to, I counted them but loss so that I could have Christ, which indicates you can't bring your righteousness. If you want Christ, you've got to discard your righteousness. So he goes on to say, verse 8, Yea, Dallas, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of, of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffer the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Now, the things he's referring to is all of that earthly, fleshly righteousness. He counts it but dung. 
He casts it aside so that he can have Christ. And what, what does he get with Christ? Well, he gets a righteousness that's imputed to him. Not infused, but imputed. We talked all about this in the last episode, all right? All of that makes sense. He goes on to say in verse 9, and be found in him, being found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, we talked in the last episode, just so that you remember, that this testimony of Paul, I think, is very powerful, especially for kids raised in a, church, a Christian home, raised in the church, because they're probably, they're used to testimonies supposed to be about people who say, all these bad things I did, then I became a Christian. And they're like, well, I didn't do all of these bad things. Paul is not sitting there saying all the bad things he did. He's saying, look how righteous I was. Look at how, how I did all of these religious things. No matter how you can be raised in a Christian home, never did anything wrong, never did anything bad, you were wonderful, you were great, you were never rebellious, you never got drunk, never committed fornication, never watched bad movies, never said a bad word, you still can, that does not mean you're saved. You're saved by an imputed righteousness, not by a practical righteousness. So there's a lot of good things in this. But after Paul describes, verse 9, he found in him not having his own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. After describing basically justification that and the, uh, the he obtaining imputed righteousness given to him by faith, after describing that, Paul then in verse 10 says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And the question is, what is going on here? So, one interpretation says, verse 9 describes justification. Verse 10 describes sanctification. And verse 11 describes glorification. Right? We've got some questions about this. I'm not going to go through them all again. Our view is none of that makes any sense. Because the Apostle Paul, if you say that what Paul's describing in verse 10 is sanctification, something that we can experience on this earth in this lifetime, well, that's going to become a very discouraging sermon to anyone who listens to it because you have the Apostle Paul in verse 10 saying, I want to know this, meaning I want to experience these things in some kind of a powerful, intimate way. And so he wants to know him. He wants to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to know the fellowship of his suffering, and he wants to be made conformable into his death. If the Apostle Paul, writing in 61, 62 AD to the people at Philippi, if he had yet to experience any of that, and he still wants to experience it, that makes absolutely no sense. Because if you think of everything Paul had experienced up to this point, he has seen the resurrected Christ. He's been taught for three years in the desert by the basically the resurrected Christ. He's been taken up to the third heaven. He has seen miracles. He is, he's experienced miracles. I mean, Christ, he's been given direct revelation from God. He's being used to write inspired scripture. If the apostle Paul gets almost to the end of his life going, I still want to know these things. And we say that's sanctification. Then you're like, well, so wait a minute. Paul if Paul never gets there, if Paul never experiences these things, well, then what hope do I ever have? So what? So some people say 9 is justification, 10 is sanctification, 11 is glorification. 
What we argue is nine is justification. And what Paul, after his justification says, I really, after all of these years, this is what I really want to know. I really want to know this in an intimate, experiential way. And our argument is these things that he's longing for, he's never going to truly experience them and know them until he experiences the resurrection of the dead. If he, re- if he experiences the resurrection of the dead, then he will truly know Christ because he will know him as he is known, that he will see him as he truly is. For now, we don't see him as he truly is. He will truly know the power of the resurrection because he will have been, he'll be, death will no longer be anymore. He's now present with Christ, glorified, or he's now no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. All of that's gone. He will now truly know the power of the resurrection and he'll be, he'll be, He'll understand the fellowship of the suffering, and we're going with John Gill here, that that means he's so united with Christ and his suffering that you now experience the true benefits from it. Well, when you're standing in the presence of God, you now have experienced truly, for the first time, the benefits of Christ's suffering because he died to, to destroy sin. Well, sin is destroyed. You're now in his presence. He he died to defeat death. Death is is defeat death is defeated. You're now in his presence. Now you're made conformable to his death because the old you is completely once and for all gone, and now you're there with no more of a sinful nature. We argue that this can only be understood to be pointing to that which can be experienced only in the resurrection of the dead. This can't be describing things you experience in this life in sanctification, because the Apostle Paul at this point would have already experienced all of that. So it's got to be referring to Paul longing for some knowledge, some experience that he is yet to encounter. And he's writing this at the end of his life. That This only can point to the resurrection. So either this is uh, verse 9 is justification, 10 is sanctification, 11 is glorification, or 9 is justification, 10 is Paul's desire to experience something that can only be experienced in glorification, which is mentioned in verse 11. That's our interpretation. Those are the two interpretations. Now, we're reviewing a sermon that supposedly is going to offer the interpretation, the first interpretation I gave you, that nine is justification, 10 is sanctification, 11 is glorification. Hopefully you understand our our viewpoint versus that one. But this sermon is going to go with that first interpretation going against ours, which is exactly what we want. We want to be challenged. And so we're getting ready to find out what's going to happen. So are you ready? We're going to jump right back in. He's, he, Steve Lawson has worked through chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, and he's now to begin verse 7. Here we go. So this leads us now to verse 7, at conversion. Uh, there came that day, that moment, that time when everything changed with the Apostle Paul And you can read about it in Acts chapter 9 as he was on the road to Damascus with letters in hand to arrest the Christians and to drag them back to Jerusalem and no doubt oversee them being put to death. When suddenly on this Damascus road, Jesus Christ appeared to him in the glory of the blazing of the light of his holiness and knocked him off his high horse. And in that moment, Paul met the risen living Christ. And I want you to hear that. He literally met the living, resurrected Christ. He literally met him. So then how can you say, well, now now he wants to really know him. 
how much more can you know him in this life beyond actually being confronted by the living resurrected Christ? Like you can't on one hand say, man, Paul, he's our, and, uh, and, the, and earlier in the sermon, he already said that Paul was the greatest Christian who ever lived. He's the greatest Christian who ever lived. Okay, well, if he's the greatest Christian who ever lived, who literally encountered the, the, the living resurrected Christ, then it makes really weird that Paul in verse 10 is like, and what I really want now is sanctification. What I really want to experience is sanctification. He's at the end of his life. You, 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 he, he still hasn't, I mean, the things Paul had experienced here should, the power of the resurrection. I don't know, meeting the resurrected Christ, I think would you 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 would have kind of I know, you would know the power of the resurrection, right? Do you think so? And all the other things, Paul. See, it's so it's so weird that all the preachers when they when they talk about Paul, they talk about all these amazing things, but somehow in verse ten, it's like, well, he didn't really yet. You know, it just shows Paul's humility, and he still wanted these things. Well, if Paul, so Paul had already experienced these things, and he's just being humble, or he hadn't experienced these things. And he's still trying to get there. Well, why hadn't he experienced these things by now? If they're possible. And then what they then preachers do is like, okay, that's what Paul wanted. Now you should want that. And here's how you get it. And they give you the four-step program. Well, if there's a four-step program to experience what Paul supposedly wants to experience in verse 10, why didn't Paul know the four-step program or three-step program? There's issues there. All right, let's continue. Paul was born again. Paul had his heart circumcised, and he entered into the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about it now in theological terms in verses 7 through 9. That's what makes this testimony as more valuable than gold, because he frames it not about Paul. He frames it about Christ. So in verse 7, but... Stop right there. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, praise God for the buts in the Bible. Praise God for this but. You need a but in your life. But God. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me. Now, what were those things? We just walked through them. Everything in verses 5 and 6. Those were things that Paul took stock in that Paul considered to be of, of, of great value by which he would obtain acceptance with God. He says, whatever things were gained to me. Now, the emphasis is on to me. They were dung to God. They were only of value to a lost man. You know what just struck me? I'm really worried now. I'm really, 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 really worried. I don't know how much time he's going to spend on verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 9, but there's less than 36 minutes to this sermon because usually your last minute or two minutes is summarizing, right? Okay, so you, we, if we sub, subtract, say, two minutes from this, we're almost down to 33 minutes left to deal with verse well, well, we're going to have less than 33 minutes uh, because you know he's, he's going to probably be another. We're probably going to have about 25 minutes for him to figure out verse 10. And that's a little troubling 
Because if he if he if he goes to verse ten and just tells me it's sanctification, but doesn't really express, because here's the let me state it this way: here's what he must do, right? He if this is going to be a great exposition, he he is absolutely required by the text to do this. Verse ten can't be made about me or you; it has to be made about Paul first. This is about Paul wanting to experience these things. So if you say it's sanctification, you got to explain to me after everything Paul had experienced up to this point, again, you go between 33, 34 AD to six, say 60 AD, Paul's experienced so many miracles, so many things, revelation from God being used to write scripture, all of these absolutely just things to even, we couldn't even comprehend. And you're telling me that he's now, he's getting to the end of his life, sitting in a prison cell going, oh, I want to experience sanctification. I so want. And so you're just saying that it just shows Paul's humility. It's so, so basically the lesson is, hey, no matter how sanctified you are, just keep telling people, I want to experience sanctification. That, that seems to destroy this having any practical meaning. But if it's Paul going, I want to experience this, and I can go, I want to experience that too. When do I experience it? And the resurrection from the dead. Then, then that makes sense. Because if it's something I'm supposed to experience, if Paul is saying he had, that would seem to conclude Paul never experienced these things. And if he never experienced them, these things, then why tell me I should strive for it? Because then I'm never going to experience these things. So I'm getting a little worried now looking at the timer. Are we actually going to get verse 10? Now, maybe he's going to go through verse 7, 8, and 9, like, and like just 60 seconds. And if he goes through it in 60 seconds, then we'll still have a little over 30 minutes to take it apart. So maybe we're going to have at least 30 minutes to work on it. So I'm hoping that's going to be the case. Here we go. Who would be clinging to them, but has no power in them whatsoever to take away sin or to give the righteousness of Christ. But whatever things were gained to me, those things. And when he says those things, he means all of those things, from his circumcision all the way down to being blameless under the law and everything in between, just the the whole mess, all of that external religion, all of that supposed morality, all of that rules-keeping, all of those self-efforts, Paul says in verse 7, I have counted as loss. I love that because he is connecting the phrase, but what things were gained to me, he's literally connecting them right back to what comes before. So that's good exposition, being exegetical. All right. Everything's still so good. And, and, and look, I may disagree with his final interpretation. Don't, please don't, I'm not, that's some, not a personal attack. We are listening to something that we know disagrees with us, right? So I'm going to let it test and challenge the, the interpretation we gave. We understand that. We want that. So it's not, I'm not mad or attacking or being mean in any way, shape or form. We just, we have to ask these questions 
That's how you challenge and, and, and your interpretation. He's asking me, he's going to be giving me his point of view, and I'm going to be asking his point of view the questions, and then we can see which one makes the most sense, all right? That's, that's all we're trying to do. Some people get really nervous when you start reviewing sermons that you're being mean or you're being rude. No, it's just asking tough questions as we all strive to try to figure out what the text actually says by the words that are actually used. So far, everything is so good. He's, he's covering every single verse I'm just looking at the clock going, man, if you don't get to verse 10, I'm really worried what's going to happen to verse 10. But here we go. The word loss here means to, to suffer loss by violent damage. It's only used four times in the New Testament. And the first two times it's used in Acts chapter 27 when Paul was on a shipwreck. And the ship was wrecked and the, the cargo was lost and, and everything went under. And that's the word that's used twice in this particular passage. And what Paul once put his trust in became a, a shipwreck that, that went down to the bottom of the ocean, never to be seen again, having no value. But Paul realized that none of that could buy one ounce of forgiveness out of the vaults of heaven, that, that, that none of that could acquire any righteousness from the storehouse of heaven above. He says, I've counted all things as loss for the sake of Christ. Uh, to, to gain Christ, Paul says, is to gain everything that I need to be able to stand faultless before God in heaven. Because when you have Christ, you have everything. You have forgiveness of sin. You have reconciliation with God. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have redemption. You have everything is in Christ. When Paul met the risen Christ, everything radically changed. Paul saw his life. He uses the terms gain and loss, loss and gain. These are financial terms. These are accounting terms. And Paul thought of his life as what we would call a T-square, and on the left side of a T-square, you put your assets. And on the right side, you put your liabilities. And so on the, on the left side is everything that is capital, everything that has value. And then on the other side is really everything you owe that has no redeeming value whatsoever. And Paul says before his conversion... He could just line up on the left side of this T-square under, under assets, circumcised the eighth day, uh, born of the... Nothing wrong with anything being said here, but you, I, I don't know if you can tell I'm getting... <laughs> well, I'll put it this way. I don't know what you're feeling, but I'm looking at the timer and I'm like, whoa... What's going to be left for verse 10? What's going to be left for verse 10? So that's, that's what we're going to continue to wait, watch and see. Here we go. Nation Israel, born of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, all the way down to blameless. It was all there on the asset side. That was what he put stock and confidence in. And on the liability side was just Jesus Christ, who means nothing to me. I'm a persecutor of Jesus Christ. 
He is a total failure and loss. And in that moment, that defining moment when Paul met the risen Christ, everything became changed. And he removed everything from this side of the ledger that was an asset. He moved it over here to the liability side. And, and he says later in verse 8 and 9, it's all just rubbish. And there's only one journal entry, just one, into the asset side of the account. And it is Jesus Christ in whom are, tr- are hidden all of the treasures of righteousness and redemption and sanctification and wisdom and knowledge and everything. Is this not true in your life? Again, I just because I'm very, 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 very specific and particular and picky when it comes to dealing with the text of Scripture, I think the best way to understand this is like all those things that were an asset are now moved over to the loss column, and the only thing in the asset column is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say anything about the riches of Jesus Christ or sanctification. No, he talks about, because look immediately what he says, verse 9, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God. He, he contrasts all of those things that were on the asset column, right, on, in the, uh, for uh, assets, to the righteousness of Christ. So that which was in the asset column gets moved out to the loss, to dung, to rubbish, and then the only thing in the asset now is that righteousness. He's contrasting the righteousness that he clung to, all of those things that he did with the righteousness of faith. He's not talking about the excellency of Jesus. or he, all. We can throw in all of that verbiage, but the contrast here in that we, I, I, I'm so particular about the language of the text. The language of the text. The text here is, that is now dung, and here's all that I have. The imputed righteousness of Christ that I have by faith. Now, to be fair, doesn't use the word imputed, right? I understand that. So you could make an argument that I'm doing the same thing. So I will say this. he, The only thing in the asset column is the righteousness that you obtain by faith. Okay? So, I I believe that the rest of Scripture would support the fact that that righteousness we obtain by faith is not a righteousness that is infused, it's imputed, it's not a righteousness anything about what we do, but what he did. So, we could just state it that way if we wanted to even be more particular and more specific. But let's continue, because every minute goes by where we, we have very we have less minutes to deal with actually verse 10, which is what this all is about. So let's hopefully we get there soon. Have have you come to meet the risen Christ? Do you know him? And in that moment when you come to see Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be, and you call upon his name for salvation. In that moment, everything that was once of any value to you of a spiritual, moral, uh, religious matter, it was just all transferred from the asset side to the liability side, and it's just nothing. It is, it, it is rubbish. And now there is only one thing in your life that matters. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That is what Paul 
in this text, the only thing that matters is the righteousness that you obtain by faith. The whole point of this section is not to get into Christ. Uh, I know we can go there, but the focus here, just to stay, I'm going to stay as, try to be as consistent with the text as possible. What matters is he had all of this righteousness. This righteousness is now dung, and now he has the righteousness that is obtained by faith. That is the contrast. That's what we have to make. Just drill into our head because I believe that has been so lost within the Protestant world, which has almost adopted a modified form of Roman Catholicism that says, when I came to faith in Christ, basically, we almost treated that we, we received an infused righteousness, right? And now I know I'm saved by looking to these righteous acts. No, I know I'm saved because an imputed righteousness has been given to me by faith, right? Because... I can't look to practical righteousness to prove that I'm saved because Paul Paul in his testimony just demonstrated you can have all of this outward righteousness and still be lost. Outward righteousness can never prove whether you have been the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to your account. You can't test and impu- you can't prove imputed righteousness by practical righteousness. But we could get again, we got to draw that distinction between imputed and infused. We have to, we can't that's the whole Protestant reformation right there. All right. Let's continue is saying. And if you have Christ, you have everything. And if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. So look at verse 8. More than that, and when Paul says that, he's really going to repeat everything he just said. He's like a carpenter driving the nail into the board, yet deeper and deeper into our understanding. More than that, I count all things to be lost, and that's that same word, to, to suffer violent damage as in a shipwreck where everything is lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have to bring this to your attention. Surpassing value, do you see that? It's just one word in the original language. It's a compound word. And the prefix is huper, which we say hyper. What Paul is saying, that Christ is of a hyper value. He, he, he is of an extreme worth. He, he is of a value that is so far surpassing of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All right, a couple of things. Number one. Told you I was starting to get worried, right? I was starting to, be, to, to get concerned that we're not going to have much time left for verse 10, and we're now less than 30 minutes. So th- this is getting really bo- troublesome. And in, I think it's also interesting. If in verse 10, Paul is like, I want to know him. But in verse 8, he just says, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. It seems like, hey, I, I threw all of these things aside so that I may know him. So there is a knowing that Paul 
He has a knowing, but he still doesn't know. And I think that means verse 10 can't be some knowledge that we gain in sanctification because Paul already has talked about a knowing. I think verse 10 is referring he wants to know him in the ultimate sense. When you experience the resurrection from the dead, when you're in his presence, you will know him as he has known you. You will know him and see him as he is. He's looking for that ultimate knowing of God. He's already experienced some knowing of Jesus. He's he's spoke with him. He's been spoken to by him. He's received direct revelation from him. So he knows him. In fact, we listened to in previous reviews of Philippians 3.10 sermons in this series, we had a pastor say, Paul knew Christ more than any person on earth. Okay, well, if Paul already knew him, then you can't say that Philippians 3.10 is, this is some knowledge we gain in sanctification. No, Paul is wanting to know him now in the most ultimate, intimate sense, which will not occur until we are in his presence. Then we will see him as he truly is, and we will know him as we are known. That, that to me, even is another proof that Philippians 3.10 can't be referring to something we experience in sanctification. It has to be pointing to the what Paul is longing for something that he will experience in the resurrection of the dead. It's the only thing that makes sense because he's already describing here that I, I threw all this off that I may have this. In fact, I'll just read this from a different translation. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, everything else is lost because I know the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He, he's, he's experienced this knowing. He's, know, he's known him in a way. Look, Paul knew Christ in a way, way beyond your, something you will ever experience. So if we're going to look at, no, Paul is describing in Philippians 3.10, some knowing that we can, we will never, we'll never reach whatever Paul is looking for unless it's referring to knowing him and glorification or after the resurrection of the dead, because we will experience that. But if this is some kind of knowing we supposedly can gain in sanctification, we'll never get it. If Paul hadn't experienced it after all the things he had already experienced, then we... This just becomes a sermon of where just everyone feel defeated because this is something that you're supposed to gain, you're supposed to experience, but you're never going to. It just seems like it just doesn't work. But let's continue. We'll see how much time. Well, I'm just going to be curious what the timer is going to say when we get to verse 10. That's what conversion is. You come to know Christ. It's not just that you come to know a plan. You come to know a person. Now, you need to know the plan in order to know the person, but you can't stop with the plan. That's just in the head. You've got to know Christ in the heart and in the soul. And that's what Paul is saying here. He doesn't merely know about Christ. He actually knows Christ. Ding, 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 ding. There you have it. He actually knows him, right? So if he actually knows him, then what is Paul longing for? Or what is his goal in verse 10? to know him. There's got to be a different knowing. There's a knowing that we have in this life, right? And there is a knowing that we long for that we will not have until the resurrection of the dead or until we're in his presence. That that, that to me just is even ding, 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 more proof of it, more proof of it, right? I, I, it has to be. All right, let's continue. 
And to emphasize this, notice he says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. He uses all three names, really one name, two titles. Jesus is his saving name. Christ is his strong name. Lord is his sovereign name. And and Paul just stacks it up to draw the attention away from himself to Christ. And not just Christ, but Christ Jesus. Not just Christ Jesus, but Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is what it, it is to become a true believer in Jesus Christ. You enter into an experiential, personal, loving relationship with Christ that is marked by intimacy in the heart. Jesus said in John 10, verse 14, I know my own, and my own know me. Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have seen. See, the more he continues to put forth this idea, the more it leading me to the interpretation we've already presented. Because, hey, you when you come to faith, you know, you know, you know, you have this knowledge. It's an intimate, personal knowledge. You know, you know, you know. Okay, well, then why in the world? And verse 10 is Paul's like, I want to know him. My goal is to know him. That knowing has to be different than the preceding, than the knowing that comes before. There is a knowing that we can have while we are in the flesh. There is a knowing that we can have while we walk on earth. There is a knowing that you can even have being, being, seeing the resurrected Christ. In other words, no matter all the things Paul experienced on this earth, that knowing still cannot compare to the ultimate knowing when we see him as he truly is. That's the ultimate knowing. So there's got to be a distinction between the knowing in verse 8 and the knowing that Paul sets as a goal in verse 10. The, ver- the verse 10 can't be simply the knowing you gain in sanctification because what 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 is Paul missing in verse 10 that he's still longing for that he had not gained in all of his experiences with Christ between his conversion in 61, 62, 60 AD. What, 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 what is he missing? What is he missing? The only thing he's missing is that ultimate knowing, which he will experience if he is, he experiences the resurrection of the dead. And I say if, because that's the language that is used and we can explain why it's used that way. And I understand why it's used that way, but we, that's the point here. There's got to be a difference between the two knowings. Let's continue. This is what it is to be converted. It is to enter into the personal knowledge of Christ. That is an experiential knowledge, just not, not just a cognitive awareness of facts, but to actually know the person of Christ who becomes more real to you than anyone else in your life, more real to you than who's sitting on your left or on on your right or who is at home. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 8, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Every conversion involves suffering loss. 
Suffering loss is one word in the original language, and it just means to be burned up. It's what's used in 1 Corinthians 3.15. The wood, the hay, and the stubble is just burned up on the last day in the judgment. It's just, there's nothing left. It's reduced to ashes. And everything that Paul was once clinging to and putting his trust in and his hope in, he suffered the loss of it all. He, He suffered deep conviction of sin. He suffered a shattered self-righteousness. Every conversion involves this suffering. No one giggles into the kingdom of God. No one skips through the narrow gate. We all come with a heart wound as we, as we have suffered the loss of all things as as, as they are now discarded from us, everything I'd once lived for and everything I had once trusted in, now to come to the point that my life has been, spiritually speaking, a total failure to this moment. Paul suffered this loss of all things, and to drive this home, he says, and count them but rubbish. Do you see that at the end of verse 8? It's the only time in the New Testament this word rubbish is used, and I'll be very discreet. But the word means manure. It means refuse. It means excrement. It's a very graphic word. And I'll let the Bible speak for itself. It's referring to that which is utterly offensive and detestable. It refers to that which now to you is loathsome and grotesque. It is that to you which now has the foul odor of that which is repugnant to you. Paul is not glorying in his pre-conversion days. Paul is... is he, he, he is so devastated of suffering this loss... He says it as discreetly as it can be said, but you cannot gain Christ until you have suffered the loss of all things. You cannot gain Christ. Okay, I want to be very careful here, and uh, and I'm not saying Steve Lawson is saying anything other. I don't like the idea of saying you can't have Christ unless you suffer the loss of all things. You can't have Christ until you suffer the loss of all righteousness you are clinging to, right? Because if you say you've got to lose all things before you can become a Christian, well, then how do you know you've ever lost? Then it becomes arbitrary, right? How do you know you've truly lost everything? How do you? And this gets into the whole discussion about discipleship versus salvation. And I know we, we can go all day here, but just let me make it very clear. A lot of times there's this discussion that you must lose everything. You must give up everything if you're going to be a Christian. And then people's like, okay, so what does that mean? Well, it just means you're willing to give up everything everything because, well, because I see lots of Christians still have plenty of things in their life that they cling to, many things, they struggle with idolatry, that they put these things before God. So they didn't lose all things. No, the context here, the losing all things is you losing all your all of that righteousness that Paul held on to, all of those things mentioned earlier. Remember, Steve Lawson in his preaching, he had no problem in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss. He immediately connected that to the things here. Well, when you get here that I counted, 
all things are a loss, though uh, I have suffered the loss of all things. It has to be referring to those same things in the verses before. All of those parts of human righteousness. If, you, if you're not careful, you're like, until you lose everything, you can't be a Christian. And people are like, well, so that means you got to give up everything. And so, well, and it's really kind of a, it, to me, it's a little game Christians play. Oh, yeah, well, I, gave, I was willing to give up everything. No, no. Saying that you're willing to give up everything, well, then you spend the rest of your week, I don't know, watching your television, washing your truck, living it, doing just all of those other things you still very much cling to, hold to, love, cherish, you know, protect. No, 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 no. That that doesn't work. If you're going to say it's the loss of all things, then you literally got to lose them all. You can't just say, well, no, in my mind... I've, I, you know, they're not as important to me as God, but then everything in your life shows that's what you spend your money on. That's what you spend. Then you haven't ha- suffered the loss of all things. Therefore, you're not saved. That becomes very subjective and that becomes a salvation by works. No, this is how it works. The loss of all things is any form of righteousness, any human righteousness, any goodness in yourself that you have held on to until you lose all of that and count it as dung. You cannot be saved because you're clinging to something other than the imputed righteousness of Christ until you're like, look, that's it. All of my righteousness is dung. I need an imputed righteousness. I need a righteousness that comes by faith. That's the loss of all things. If you try to, if you try to expand it, you're going to end up with, I, I, who's saved? Just go sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor, then come and follow me. Have you, oh no, you haven't done that, have you? No, you wouldn't even do that even if I told you you had to do that. No, you wouldn't, all right? Because we would never do that because our, because that's not the way we work and that's, we would never do it because of it. we're sinners. We're sin- And even if we gave up all of that, it still wouldn't save us, right? Because what it's trying to demonstrate is that we're sinners and we still cling to things. We always will. We can try to pretend all, all day. I've suffered the loss of all things. It's just garbage. I cling to things all the time, so do you. But the one thing I can no longer cling to is my righteousness or good deeds or acts because I know none of that will save me. It has to be the righteousness of Christ. I think we have to really overemphasize that or we end up turning this into some kind of like, well, did you lose all things? Or if you didn't, you're not saved. No, did you lose all hope and clinging to any self-righteousness, to any righteous acts, to any spiritual good? If you're clinging to any of that, no, you can't be saved because you can't bring your righteousness to faith in, to Christ because it's nothing but filthy rags. You've got to lose all of that so that, well, then the only thing you only thing you can cling to is the imputed righteousness, right? Um, I'm getting really nervous because we're probably down to 20 minutes and we're still... We still got the rest of this verse and the next verse before we get to 10. Maybe he skips the next verse and goes straight to 10. Because remember, the whole thing is to give me an interpretation of 10. I'm getting worried here. Let's see what happens. And hold on to anything else to save you. You cannot gain Christ and cling to any good work. You cannot gain Christ and cling to one drop of water baptism. 
Okay, now, there we go. Now, now he's going, the, now, now, he's emphasizing. So here, man, I'm like, amen, amen, amen. You can't cling to any act, any work, any spiritual. If you cling to any of that, you cannot have Christ. Man, all day I'm with you here. But if you're not careful, some people take this like, you've got to give up everything. And you're like, what does that mean? And it's always some, we play some game like, you've just got to count the cost and give up everything. Then you can be a Christian. And it's like, wait, wait. So how does this work? I'm saved by grace, but I got to do what? How do I know if I've given this up? Because you don't see people selling everything. So it's just supposedly you just tell yourself that you've put Christ first, but anyone looking at your life going, you haven't. No, this is what it's referring to. You can't cling to any spiritual good, any spiritual act, any, any part of your own righteousness. That is what this is referring to. Cannot gain Christ and, and rely upon church membership or your own morality or your, your own religiosity. You cannot play all ends into the middle to cover your bases. It's Christ and Christ only or you will not have Christ. And, and I do, I do applaud that. That I do. I, that 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 is good stuff. That is that is good stuff. I mean, I no no sarcasm at all. I don't want anything to, to misinterpret that. That is awesome stuff. Awesome, 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 awesome. So I mean, I'm so much in line with everything so far. I was getting a little worried in where he was going because I've heard so many times sermons preach. You know, you got to be willing to lose everything, and it's and yeah, and it just becomes this subjective. Like, so wait, did I lose it? Did I give up everything? I don't know. Did I give up enough? I don't know. Am I saved? Okay, so this is really, really, really good. But man, we don't have much sermon left, and he still hadn't even touched verse ten, and that's the whole point of this exercise. So let we're we're we're, we're I'm getting worried because I don't think he's going to be able to give much time to it. Here we go. There are some people who think, well, I, I have Christ in one hand, but I'll still put trust in the church or in knowing the pastor or that I've been baptized or that I'm serving. And, and there is no conversion at that point. The only way to come to faith in Christ is to consider all of this as excrement. Let it go and to cling only to Christ who is Savior. That is what Paul is telling us. Now listen, if salvation was 99.9% God working through Christ and only 0.1% you and me, we would all be perishing and we would all be damned forever. We must let go of even 0.1%, 0.001% in order to have Christ. In my hands, no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Have you suffered the loss of everything that was once precious and dear to you in a previous life in order that you might have Christ? You cannot have Christ until you let it all go and come by faith and by faith alone to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice at the end of verse 8, it says, so that I may gain Christ. Yeah, just this one possession of Christ is worth more than all the fortunes of this world. Just to gain Christ is to gain everything. Hey, 
Christ is the treasure hidden in the field that a man would sell all of his possessions to gain this one prize. He says in verse 9, it may be found in him. Paul understood he had to be found by Christ. Okay, okay, okay. We've made it to verse 9. Oh boy, we've got, we got less than 20 minutes. We got less than 20 minutes. Oh boy, I am getting worried. And I know if you're looking at the time, you're like, this is going to go long. Remember, I told you, I got to finish this review in this episode because of the power grid situation here in West Texas. And if we lose power, I, I, I got to finish this now because I don't know what's coming over the next few hours. So we're going we're gonna to stay here. But remember, the whole point of this was verse 10, verse 10, verse 10, verse 10. We're 32 minutes, well, 33 minutes into this, and we haven't even got near verse 10. However, everything he's saying is true. Everything is right. Everything's excellent. And I'm not saying that this was even Steve Lawson's point. Verse 10 may not even have been his point. This just was the sermon that was sent to me going, hey, verse 10, this, this covers verse 10. Now, he laser focus in on the text. Everything here is perfect. Everything is awesome. Just supposedly he's going to give an interpretation of verse 10 that's different than ours, very different than ours. My concern is he's just going to throw out, hey, verse 10 is sanctification and not even bother to explain all of the questions I've raised with that interpretation so far. I've raised multiple ones here. And well, let's see if he, I I, I, I just don't know how you're going to be able to, to process verse 10 and the time he has remaining. I spent over an hour working on it. We've spent, well, we've spent now almost five hours working on it in live broadcast. I, I just, I, I'm just going to be, if he can pull this off, it's going to be amazing. Let's see what, what happens. Before he could be found in Christ. To be found in him means to be now in a vital living union with Christ. That those two little words, in him, are found 75 times in Paul's 13 epistles. And it represents this union and communion with Christ. By being in Christ, listen to this. All of the assets of Christ are transferred to your account. All of his righteousness is imputed to you, reckoned to you, credited to you, deposited into your account the moment you trust Christ. It's the great exchange of the cross. All of my sin laid upon Christ. His perfect righteousness laid on me. That's what Paul is saying. In the middle of verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, Paul understood what Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, verse 6, that, that all of our righteousness is as filthy garments in his sight. The best about us, the best that we have to offer God is but filthy garments, odious rags to God not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes from God. The righteousness that we so desperately need in order to stand faultless before the throne of God 
is the righteousness that God Himself must provide. And the righteousness that He provides is the righteousness that Jesus Christ Himself achieved and secured through an entire life of obedience to God. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, Jesus was born under the law. He was born under the law that He might live under the law and live in perfect obedience to the law of God. And the final act of His obedience to God was to go to the cross and to there give His life a ransom for many. And the whole way from, the, from his, his, the beginning of His life to the end of His life, it was all one life of obedience to God. We have been disobedient to God our entire life. But Jesus lived the life that none of us could ever live. He lived in perfect obedience to the law of God. And now because of my faith in Christ, His perfect obedience is reckoned to me as righteousness. That's what Paul is is, is telling us and is acknowledging. Where the first Adam disobeyed and failed, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, obeyed and triumphed. Romans 5 verse 19, it says, For as through the one man's disobedience, referring to Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The one man, Christ, acting on behalf of all of his people, lived in our place, he died in our place, all of it together is a comprehensive righteousness that is credited to us, declared to be ours when we believe in Jesus Christ. There are three metaphors that are used in the New Testament for this transaction. One is a a legal courtroom in which we stand before God, condemned sinners, the books are open, there is the entire record of our life, we have no basis to find acceptance with God who demands perfection. Standing next to me is Jesus Christ, the only one who has ever lived a perfect righteous life and who died in my place. And because of my faith in Christ, God the Father declares you and me as believers in Christ to be righteous in the courtroom of heaven. Though we have never lived perfectly righteous one millisecond of our life. The second metaphor is that of a banking institution, a financial institution. We, We stand before the Lord Jesus. We stand before God the Father. We are spiritually bankrupt. We have no spiritual capital. The wages of our sin is death. It is compounding interest by the moment. We have no basis to pay off our debt to God by our breaking His law. Standing next to us is Jesus Christ, who has perfectly obeyed the law of God. And because of my faith in Christ, the vast treasures of Christ's forgiveness and righteousness are now deposited into my account. I didn't work for it. I didn't earn it. I, did, I don't merit it, but it is given to me on the basis of faith in Christ. 
Now, everything he's saying is 1,000% right. I agree with it. It's still logically sound. It's biblical. It's godly. Praise God. Amazing sermon. Everything is great. So I want to make sure any criticism I have with how he handles verse 10, I want to make it very clear. Clearly, this sermon isn't about verse 10. Clearly, it's not. Clearly, what he wanted to focus on was Philippians 3, verses 1 through 9. Clearly, that's what he wanted to focus on. Because we're 38 or almost 40 minutes into this sermon. He's not even near verse 10. There's probably less than 13 minutes left of this sermon. So whatever he does with verse 10 is just going to be an afterthought. It's just going to be thrown in. So if I criticize what he does with verse 10, I'm not criticizing the sermon and I'm not criticizing his preaching because that was clearly not the goal of this sermon, right? Now, our our goal is to figure out Philippians 3.10. This was sent to me as, this is a wonderful example of exposition. It's it's a, you know basically like a masterclass in exposition. That's not the word used in the email. That's the word I'm using. That it's, it's this great thing and that he's going to show us that Philippians 3.10 is to be interpreted as sanctification. Let's make it very clear. This sermon cannot be used to say he's proving anything about how to interpret verse 10 because he's not... He's not, I mean, if you're going to spend time trying to argue how to interpret verse 10, you'd have to dedicate an hour going, here's this view, here's this view, here's this view, here's the strengths of this, here's the weakness of this, here's the reason for this. He's just, I don't know what he's going to say, but at this point, this can't be used as, hey, this will challenge your your view, because this is not an any kind of, this is no extensive work at all in verse 10. And what I'm finding is that in sermon after sermon that we keep, we keep listening to or people keep sending me, is that verse 10, nobody wants to really spend any serious time in verse 10. There's kind of like all of those other verses. Yeah, people want to spend time because you can work on those previous verses. Those other verses preach so good. They're awesome. They're amazing. But we can't just like, well, verse 10 is difficult. So we'll just we'll just throw in a, a couple of minutes to verse 10. Verse 10 needs like, I don't know, 15 hours to figure out. So that so just any criticism is I'm not criticizing Steve Lawson here because I, obviously verse 10 is not his point. It's not his focus. It's not his goal. It's not his thesis. So fine, I'm going to hear what he has to say, but clearly it can't be seen that he proved his thesis because he's not done anything to work on verse 10 up to this point. But who knows? Maybe he's going to just be so, it's going to be so clear that when he gives his interpretation of verse 10, it's going to be like, well, obviously that's what it means. Maybe that's going to happen, I'm skeptical because we're quickly running out of time. And then the third metaphor is that of a clothing merchant. I stand before God with all of the foul rags of my filthy garments, loathsome and repugnant to God, covering the spiritual leprosy of, of my own body. Standing next to me is Jesus Christ. And because of my faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father takes the perfect robes of His righteousness and clothes me from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet 
such that as God looks at me, he sees only the perfect garments of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I still continue to sin. I still continue to break his law. But God sees me clothed with the righteousness. I mean, this is so, this is so good. This is why I don't, and now I feel bad that I, that if we disagree with his interpretation of verse 10, I'm going to feel bad criticizing it or disagreeing with it because this has been an absolutely amazing sermon and he's, and this needs to be heard by everyone because he's really putting forth the idea of the doctrine of imputation of the righteousness of God being imputed, not infused. He's making, it's, I still sin. I'm still a sinful nature. I still have a sinful nature. I'm still a sinner. Therefore, I'm not a new creature and old things have passed away and all things have become new practically. That is true positionally, not true practically because I'm still a sinner. It's not a righteousness infused into me. It's an imputed righteousness. Therefore, I cannot look to practical righteousness to prove that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me because an imputed righteousness cannot be proven by the presence of a practical righteousness because it's imputed. It's not infused, right? So this is all awesome, great, biblical, theological, everything. I I love everything about it. I'm just, this. remember this whole point was this was supposed to show us verse 10. This was supposed to show us verse 10. And well, once again, another sermon that's supposed to give us Philippians 3.10. And I'm not saying that that was the intent of this sermon, because I don't think it was. I think the person listening loved everything proceeding up to verse 10. And he just, Steve Lawson's just going to throw something out about verse 10 and go, oh, see, see, because we literally have less than 15. I think we may be down to about 11 or 12 minutes here um, on. So his, his what he handles with verse 10 is not going to be, I mean, it's going to have to just be, um, I, I don't know. I, I Let's just see what happens. All right. Let's see what happens. Here we go. Of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road, but rather than talk about the road and those who were traveling with him and the bright light that appeared and, and, and Damascus and where it was and all the circumstances of his conversion, Paul cuts to the chase. Paul goes right to the truth of the gospel. Let me tell you what happened in my life that split second that I met Jesus Christ. I gave it all up. I suffered the loss of all things. And I found Christ. I was found by Christ, and I was found to be in Christ. Has this happened in your life? We all have a BC day. Have you ever come to faith in Christ? Have you ever put your trust in Him? Because until you do, you are standing in the filthy garments of your own self-righteousness, and you are a spiritual leper in the sight of God, and you are crying out, unclean, unclean, unclean. There is only one way to be made pure, and that is to be washed in the blood of the Lamb and to be clothed with his perfect righteousness. Well, this leads finally now. Okay, here we go. Here we go. All right. We have about 10 minutes, about 10 minutes to to handle verse 10. 
So whatever he says, you may agree with what he says about verse 10. I just want to make sure it's clear to anyone who agrees with his interpretation of verse 10. Don't base it off this sermon because this sermon is not an exegetical study of verse 10. It's an exegetical study of verses 1 through 9, which is great, which and it's perfect, and it's awesome, and it's wonderful. But what he does with verse 10 here is going to be quick surface, and he's not, and, and what I fear is even if he says, and I, which supposedly according to the emailer, this is going to be like, verse 10 is to be interpreted as sanctification. He's not in any way, go, shape, or form going to be able to explain how this works, what it looks like. It's going to be so vague that we're going to be still left with, what do we do with verse 10? Which is what I am with all, every time I hear people handle verse, what? So at least we've come up with a something that we've tried to demonstrate We'll contrast it quickly and we'll see, all right? So here we go, thinking caps on. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we spent now another two hours to get to. This is everything right here. This is the whole ball game for this sermon. This is what we're waiting for. Here we go. To after conversion, verses 10 and 11. And as soon as Paul was converted, he immediately began to live for Christ And he says in verse 10, he had a new purpose, that I may know him. We might say, now wait a minute, Paul, you just told us earlier in in verse 8 that you've come to know Christ. Okay, good, 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 good. He said, this is awesome because he's acknowledging that Paul's already talked about knowing him. Now, that's good. I am glad he's going to contrast this or explain this. But another thing he needs to explain, and this is very important, is Paul is writing this in Philippians 3.10 at around 60 AD. So you have to, whatever Paul's getting ready to say, his goal here now is to say, I want to know him. That means everything Paul had experienced from conversion to 60 AD, he's longing for a knowledge that goes beyond everything he had experienced. That's what we need him to explain, right? It's one thing. I'm glad he's going to point to verse 8. That is brilliant. That's great. That's good exposition. That's wonderful preaching. That's everything you learn in a good class on hermeneutics. Everything is perfect and awesome here. But if he doesn't explain how Paul can be at 60 AD, experienced everything he experienced and said, I want to know him, You've got to, and say that this is what happens in the Christian life. No, I think that what we're getting in verse 10 is Paul, after his conversion, he truly wants to know. He wants to know in the most intimate way. And the only time that's going to happen is in the resurrection, when we're in the presence of God, when we see him as he truly is, and we know him as we are truly known. That's, that's, this can't be something that happens during your life in sanctification, Because Paul, if Paul hadn't experienced it, then none of us will ever experience it. Because he's at the end of his life, and he's seen the resurrected Christ, been taught by the, he's encountered the resurrection Christ, been taught by the resurrected Christ, been given direct revelation. He's been used to write scripture. I mean, come on. If, if If he doesn't know him, then we will never know Christ. So this has to be a knowledge he is seeking for that goes beyond everything he'd already experienced in those 30-something years. And I think that that points to he wants to know something that will only be experienced in the resurrection from the dead. Let's see how he explains this. 
And now you're telling us that you're, the purpose in your life is that you may know Him. How can you come to know Him if you already know Him? And the answer to that is in verse 10, He is saying, yes, I came to know Him in verse 8, but I must know more of Christ. I must draw closer to Christ. I must fellowship with Christ. I, I must grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. He wants to know more of Christ. Is that not the new purpose in your life? Listen to the words of the hymn. More about Jesus. So again, what he's saying is, that, and so I want to make sure you just understand the implications of this. Paul. And all of those, basically almost 30 years since his conversion, right? Around 30 years, maybe a little less than 30 years since his conversion. After writing books of the New Testament, receiving direct revelation from God, experiencing all of these miracles, after all of that, Paul still realizes, I still want to know more. So then guess what that tells you sitting in the pew? Well, then, <laughs> okay, well, I'm... I'm never going to, I'm never going to know what Paul knew. So, I mean, well, I mean, like, I, I don't even know what you do with that. But if Paul is like, I want to, I, I want to know him now fully. I've known him, but I want to know him now fully. Well, then he is longing for the knowledge that cannot be obtained in the flesh. It can only be obtained when we are freed from the flesh in the resurrection, when we see him as he truly is and we are known as we are known, we know him as, as we are known. That's when he can truly say, I know him. That's what he's longing for. That, that makes sense. But if you're like, no, Paul's just still wanting to know more. So you should want to know more. But if I'm supposed to know more because Paul wanted to know more, I'll never even get to the knowledge that Paul knew. So this just seems, I, this just seems like your goal should to be know as much as Paul knew. Well, Paul never, it, it just doesn't work. Because I'm never going to get to what Paul knew because Paul experienced things that I can never experience or never will experience. But if Paul is longing for something that he had not experienced yet, then it means I can long for the same thing because me and Paul will experience the exact same knowledge. When Paul departed from this body and entered into the presence of God, he knew all these things he longed for, he experienced. And when I experience death, and then I'm in the presence of God, I will know the exact same things as Paul did. So I can long for the same thing Paul longed for, just it's not something that can be met or, or experienced in this life. It's going to happen in the resurrection. It ha This has to be pointing to that knowledge, not some knowledge that he was still trying to gain on earth. He had already experienced pretty much anything and everything that a person could ever hope to experience would I know, more of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me, more, more about Jesus, more, more about Jesus, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. We've only just begun to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the height, the depth, the breadth, the length, of the infinite eternal Son of God. It will take all eternity future to begin to even grow closer and closer, and we'll never come to the end of knowing Him fully and completely. 
So Paul is on a new path. He has a new purpose. He also has a new power. Notice in verse 10, and the power of his resurrection. That word and is very important because it makes the, these two inseparably connected. He wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. This power is the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Oh boy, now here, here's where it's getting ready. Here's where I'm getting ready to have problems, okay? All right, so Paul, now th- again, well, let's go back to Paul. He wants to know him, all right? Now, he's, he's explaining that as like he wants to know him something that can happen on earth. He, he didn't even bother to explain how Paul could be getting to 60, 61 AD and still be saying, I want to know him. And so, and, and then yet you say that there's some way to gain it, but then you acknowledge that you truly won't gain it until you're in eternity. And even then will take forever. So he's, he's desiring something that he will never truly experience until he's in the presence of God. Okay, I guess you can say, so we should all desire the same thing. Okay, now he's going to talk about the power, right? The power. Now, if this turns into, hey, you have this power, well, then I'm going to have a problem because I'm I'm tired of Christians being told we have all of this power, but yet we're still going to sin. We're still going to do this and we're still going to, well, wait a minute. I thought we have this power, right? So it's like we have power, but we don't have power. We have power, but the power is not good enough to, no. If you want to know the power of the resurrection, the way you're going to truly know that is when you experience, well, I don't know, the resurrection, when you die and you enter into the presence of God, then you'll know. It has to be referring to the ultimate fulfillment of this. It can't be like trying to grab onto some earthly thing that we convince ourselves we're experiencing it. Let's see how he describes this power. Paul understands must be operative in his Christian life in order to live the Christian life. Listen, the Christian life's not hard. It's impossible. You can't do it. I can't do it in our own strength. It is only by the power of his resurrection. No, we're right back to the same story. You can't do it. But with the power of God, you can. All right, so if I can't do it, but I have now the power to do it, then I should be able to do it perfectly. No more sin, no more lust, no more gossip, no more slander, no more division, no more anything. But how come we constantly tell everyone they've got the power, but then we say, but you still can't be sinless, you still can't be perfect. So there's a limit to this power. It's the power of the resurrection, but it's just not powerful enough to keep me from sinning, from lusting, from from greed, from all the different things that show up in our lives over and over. He's already said that we don't live righteous for one second. Well, if I don't live righteous for one second, however, the, I've got the power of God to live the Christian life, you've got to explain the contradiction. I've got the power, but the power is limited. Well, then that's not the power of God. The power of God is not limited. No, the power here, and if, and, and if this power is to live the Christian life, then why does Paul in Romans 7 says the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. And that with my mind, I will serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I will serve the law of sin. The end of Romans chapter 7. Oh, but, but you got the power now. So you can't live the Christian life, but with the power of God, you can live the Christian life. Okay, I can live. What does that mean? I have the power now to do what? I have the power now to do what? What, perfect? No. Can't be, I have the power what? To know theology? 
on how to interpret the Bible correctly, because 2,000 years of church history, we don't agree on anything. 2,000 years of church history, Christians committing every kind of wrong and sin that you can imagine, or are you going to start then saying, well, people who do this and this and this don't have the power, because if they had the power, they wouldn't do this. You keep doing that, sooner or later, you're going to look in the mirror and realize, that person right there, you don't have the power, because I know what, oh, wait, I'm talking to myself. But this is the, this is just so, this is like, Every Christian preaches it this way. You get power. Say, Paul knows about the power. So you can't live the Christian life, but you get power. Oh, we got the power to do it. And then church splits, Christian marriages, divorce, fornication, adultery, pornography. You, you, you know, look at the, the, the report about the SBC sexual abuse. You just sin, brokenness, sin, brokenness, sin, brokenness. Even if it's not an external showing of sin, the internal is all over. We don't even want to show everyone what's going on in our hearts and minds. We, we don't even want anyone to know that. But we got power. We got, we talk the, we preach this power thing so much. And that, and we want to know why so many people have reached or on TikTok deconstructing because they've been told that you've got this power. And at some point you wake up and going, where is the power around me, in me, through me? But this would make perfect sense if I, 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 I want to truly know Christ. And I truly want to know the power of the resurrection. Well, you know what? You will truly know that power. You will truly know him and know that power when you stand in his presence. The resurrection of the dead, you will truly know. When, or when you die and enter into his presence, you're going to know him and you're going to know the power of the resurrection. This has to be pointing to that, not some pretend game that we play with ourselves on in, uh, in this life. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Let's see if, how he continues to go with this direction. That we can put one foot in front of the other in the morning as we arise and live, this, live for Christ in this fallen world. We must have the power of the resurrection. Now, you may say, how could I have more of this power in my life? Surely every one of us here today would say, I want more power to resist temptation, more Wait, so I got power, but I need more power. So that's the problem, right? You've got power, you just need, I need more power. How does that go in from uh, Star Trek? Give me more power, Scotty, give me more power. I'm giving you all the power I have, however it goes in Star Trek, for those who watch Star Trek. Okay, well, however it goes, I don't can't do the accent that Scotty had. Okay, it was an Irish accent, I think it was, I can't remember, but you get the idea. I need more power. I need more power. If I could get more power, more power to resist temptation. That's the problem. We've got power. We just don't have enough of it. So now there's, there's a, is there a gauge? Do, do, does your Apple watch say, okay, you're a Christian now. You've got power, but it's only at 15%. If you'll, if you'll get that up to 70%, you can be almost sinlessly, almost, almost reach sinless perfection. If you get that a hundred percent, ding, 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 you can do it. Now you say, you're, 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 you're being ridiculous. No, I'm not. You tell people there's a power. You got to be able to explain how the power is obtained, exactly what the power can and cannot do. That is the responsibility of every preacher. When you sit there and look at people saying, you have power to live the Christian life. So any deviation from the Christian life, man, you had the power to do it. So it, there's no excuse. No excuse, but I still have a sinful nature. No, you've got the power to overcome the sinful nature. 
Or no, no, the power is not that good. What, what, what do you mean? To, how much power? What, what does the power do? It's so subjective that we just throw it out and everyone's walking around. I've got the power. I've got the power. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Whatever. Okay. Yeah. You, you've got the power. Let, let's see. He's going to talk about getting more. I, I wonder, are we going to get the clue in how we get more? Let's find out. Power to obey, more power to serve, more power to deny the flesh. It's right here in this text. There is a, Paul is so linear, he's so logical, he's so theological. The way to know the power of his resurrection is to grow to know Christ more intimately and more personally. <laughs> okay, so you see how it works? Hey, hey, anyone listening today, today, you know, oh, you're having problems with temptation? You're having problems with sin? Your problem is you don't know him enough. If you learn, if you get to know him more, you'll get more power. So you've got to know him. So what do I got to do to know him? Let me see. Let me see. I bet you it goes something like this. Read my Bible more, study my Bible more, pray more, go to church more. Then I'll know him more. Then I'll get more power so that I can do more. He always goes to it. The reason you don't have power is you don't know him. How do I know him? You got to study more. You got to memorize scripture more. You got to do these things more. Then you'll get more power. This seems to completely defeat everything that this chapter has been about. It's not about what I do. It's about what he did. And now I want to know the full ramifications. I want to know the full reality of what he has done for me. Here's why I want to know his person. Right? And I'm going I'm never going to know his person fully until I'm in his presence. I want to know the power of the resurrection fully because I've ne- I'm never going to experience the power of the resurrection until and please know, he just said power, he's not really ex- even connected it to resurrection yet, but the power of the resurrection, how am I going to know the power of the resurrection? I die yet I live. There there. Now I know the power of the resurrection. But he's just like, you can have the power to live the Christian life and you get more power when you get more knowledge. So the more you study, the more powerful you become. So if a Christian comes and like, I'm struggling with sin, you need to know him more, study your Bible more, read more, memorize scripture more, go to church more, listen to more sermons, but I'm still struggling. You need more power. How do you get more power? Know him more, read more, study more, pray more. The more you grow to know Christ, the more the power of his resurrection is released in your life. Please note, the power of the resurrection is released in your life. It is dependent on how much knowledge you have. So here's the power, right? So I have it right here, this bottle of water. There's the power of the resurrection right here. It's in this bottle. It's in this bottle and it's inside of me, but it can't do anything until I get a certain amount of knowledge. So a certain amount of knowledge releases the power, release the Kraken. It will only happen when I get a certain amount of knowledge. Certain amount of knowledge equals the release of the power. This... If it's the power of God, shouldn't the power of God be able to overcome my lack of knowledge? No, the power of God is like, oh, it's there. It's there. Oh, man, if, if only he would grow in his knowledge, he could gain a little bit more power. 
If only he would study more. If only he would read more. If only he would go to church more. If only he would listen to sermons 22 hours a day. He would know so much and he would have so much power. And you say, you're not being fair. Oh, yes, I'm being fair. That's literally the system that's being set up. Here's this power. You get some, but if you want more, you got to get more knowledge. So the formula is more knowledge equals more power. However, I bet you there's a limit to that power because I don't think Lawson would ever say I can get so much knowledge that I gain so much power that I can be sinlessly perfect. However, in theory, it should be possible. I can get enough knowledge that I gain enough power that I therefore am without sin. You would have to say it's possible, right? Because the only thing limiting the power is the knowledge. So if I get, and how much knowledge, like, I, I, this just is, this is, it's all, this is all falling apart now. This is all falling apart now. Grow to know Christ. He will say later in this book, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Everything that God calls you to do for the rest of your life, he will give you the power to do it. Everything God calls you to do, he'll give you the power to do it. He calls me to be holy as he is holy. So he's given me the power to be as holy as he is holy. Therefore, that, could, that would be sinless perfection. If he calls me to be as holy as he is holy, that's without sin. So if he's going to give me the power to do that, then I can be sinless. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. He calls me to do that. I can do that. No, everything God calls me to do, he provides me the obedience to those commands in Christ Jesus. When you say that anything he calls you to do, he gives you the power to do, then we would be without sin. He calls us not to lust, so all lust would stop. He calls us not to commit fornication. All fornication, all fornication would stop. All adultery, all, all ever, you just go on. No greed, no, no gossip, no slander, no, no hatred, no lack of forgiveness. Turn the other cheek, love your enemy. We, we would do it all perfectly. Because he, would, he gives us the For anything he calls you to do, he gives you the power to do. You say, well, but you've got to use the power. You, you're telling me his power can't overcome my lack of wanting to use said power? That limits the power. Now you're putting me more powerful than the power that supposedly allows me to do everything God tells me to do. Or that it, he will give me the power to do everything he calls me to do. You don't see the utter brokenness of this whole entire concept? He will give you the power to do everything he calls you to do. Well, then you can be holy. Here's the thing. I'm going to get emails of people arguing against me. Don't, don't argue. Just show me that you can be as holy as God. I do believe he will provide whatever he calls. He calls me to be holy. I get the holiness imputed to me by faith. What Paul is longing for in Philippians 3.10 is to, to experience the ultimate knowledge power to experience this fully. And that will only happen after the resurrection of the dead. All right. Or, or when we enter into the presence of God, however you want to work that I, to be absent from the bodies, to be present. When I'm in his presence, then I truly experience all of these things. If it's in his will, but you must know his son 
to know this power. And then he goes on to talk about, in verse 10, a new pain. There's another and, and these are all coupled together. It's not a multiple choice. And the fellowship of his suffering. This is talking about persecution and opposition and rejection from the world. It's talking about... Paul is saying he wants to know persecution while writing from a prison cell? Paul hadn't already experienced persecution? Like, let that, me... Paul's like, I want to know more suffering. I, I think he want, I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. And I, I agree with John Gill here in his commentary that no, to, to, the fellowship of the suffering is that I'm so united with him in his suffering that I experience the true ultimate benefit that comes from that suffering. And you know, when I will truly experience the fellowship of that suffering, that I'm so connected with it, that I truly experience the benefit of it when I die and I'm in the presence of God. And guess what? Christ died to defeat sin. Christ died to defeat death. Well, guess what? In his presence, no more sin, no more death. There, I'm united to the fellowship of his suffering completely. But here, like Paul is like, I want to suffer more. So you're from between 34 AD and 60 AD, he didn't suffer enough. He wants more suffering. He's like, I want more. My goal is to suffer more. I want to suffer more. That like, So, so, hey, you look at all the suffering Paul went through. Hey, have you suffered that much? Well, you better start wanting to suffer that much. Uh, like, like, like. Paying the price to be a follower of Christ is talking about suffering for Christ. And he's wanting the Philippians to know and for you and me to know that it's all a package deal. That as you grow to know Christ more closely, you will stand up and make him known more fully. And as you make Christ known more fully, there will be a price to pay for your witness and for your testimony for Christ. And it is sure to come. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so it's hard to live Oh, and at the end of, note, at the end of verse 10, being conformed to his death. What that is saying is, as the world is rejecting us and opposing us, we are being conformed. You see how quickly, see, subtly, without even realizing it, he's left Paul and now it's about us. Now, this is about the Apostle Paul saying, I, this is my goal now, but he's making it about us really, 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 really quick. It's becoming about us and not about Paul. How does this apply to Paul sitting in a prison writing to the church of Philippi after 30 years of suffering? It, it, it fits Paul and it fits me this way. Paul wants to know him in a way that he had not known him after all of those years of experience, everything he experienced. And I want to know the same thing Paul wants to know, and we won't know him that way until we're in his presence. 
He wants to experience the power of the resurrection. I won't experience that until I'm in the presence after I've died into his presence. Well, after I have died and I'm in his presence, I've experienced the power of the resurrection. Fellowship of his suffering. I want to be so united to his suffering that I truly feel the benefits that come from that suffering and to be conformable to his death. When I am in his presence, I am now completely conformed to his death because the old me now no longer exists. The old nature is gone. Sin is gone. And now I I will become like him. There we have it. That all this cannot refer to things that happen in this life. This is referring to what happened. Paul is longing to experience something that happens in the resurrection from the dead after we die. That's what he's looking for. Nothing else. And he didn't even come even close to try to explain how any of this actually works in any meaningful way other than making some absolutely outlandish claim that whatever God wants you to do, you're going to have the power to do. But he doesn't explain how God can tell me be holy as he is holy, yet I supposedly have the power to be that holy. He doesn't explain how that works because no one has an explanation. We just throw out a comment without really thinking it through. And I, I, this is where I have strong disagreements here to the death of Christ, and it is the means by which we die to self, and we die to the world's approval, and we die to the world's applause, and we die to this evil world system. It's hard to live for this world when this world is persecuting you. It's hard to be worldly when the world is persecuting you. And so there is a sanctifying effect that comes from this persecution. And he concludes in verse 11, and we'll wrap this up with a new prospect. He says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is glorification. Verse 9 was justification. Verse 10 was sanctification. Verse 11 is glorification. Oh, man. Okay. There's so many. Okay. Verse, verse 10 cannot be referring to sanctification. He did nothing to even explain how that works. He made nothing. This is what Paul's saying. I want to know these things. Right? Paul's saying, I want to know these things, experience these things. And I, and he says, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. It seems to me the way to understand this is I want to know these, assuming I will experience the resurrection of the dead, implying that I won't know these if I don't experience the resurrection of the dead. In other words, what's required for me to know these things is the resurrection from the dead. That seems the only way to handle this. I'm going to look something up really quick. And I know we're almost out of, well, we're way over time, but that's okay. Told you I had to finish this. Philippians 3, 11. I'm going to read this from every possible English translation on the earth. Okay, Philippians 3, 11. So after, I'm going to go back here to 10. Okay, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. New Living Translation. So that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. That by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection of the dead. And so, somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, you can read this like would probably be done in a Catholic setting, where you must do the, you must go through these things 
in order to be to experience the resurrection. Like you have to and you have to experience these things or in other words, you've got to you've got to experience that power, you've got to suffer, you've got to die or you to self or you will not be resurrected. In other words, your resurrection from the dead is dependent upon you doing these things. That's how in a from a Catholic perspective, that's how you would look at this. Yeah, you want the experience you want to experience the resurrection of the dead, you must then go through these other things. That's a very non and that goes against the entire reading of all of the fact that Paul just said, it's not what I do. No, it's what Christ has done for me. So I, I let, let's continue to read this. It says, by if by any means, if by any means, if, uh, if somehow I may obtain, so that I may obtain, assuming that I will somehow uh, uh, attain, this, this verse definitely presents some problems. This is the way I'm going to read it. I want to experience all of these things, and I will if somehow I attain to the resurrection of the dead. If I experience the resurrection of the dead, I will experience these things. If you make it a conditional, then you almost walk back into a work salvation. I think he's saying it almost like, hey, if I can experience the resurrection of the dead, then I will experience these things. But he's already established why he, like, he's saying it almost like in a, hey, if somehow I could experience the resurrection of the dead, then I would experience these things. And he's already established that he will experience the res- res- resurrection of the dead because his salvation is not based on what he does, but on a righteousness that comes by faith. If you, if you, if you try to say, so basically, if you're not careful, this is what, this is what you would have to say. You have to be justified by faith. And then you must experience these certain things. However, you describe verse 10, you must experience these things. Basically, you must die to self. And if you don't die to self, you will not be saved. In other words, you walk right back into a workspace salvation. That can't work. But it does work if you say, I want to experience these things in verse 10. And I look at the the fulfillment of that is all happening after I've died. And I will if I experience the resurrection of the dead. That's the only way to make this work, or you really are just walked right back into a workspace salvation. Paul is such a systematic theologian that even as he gives his testimony, he is walking us through almost a table of contents of a body of divinity. The resurrection from the dead refers to the resurrection unto life. John 5, 28, at the end of the age. And for Paul, this is very real because he is imprisoned in Rome and he is facing his own death. He is awaiting his trial before Caesar who has the power of life and death over him. And so for Paul, this is not just a, 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 a philosophical discussion. This is as real to life as it could possibly be as he's facing his own death. And Paul understands that at his death he will graduate to glory, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And my body, Paul says, will be placed in the grave. My soul and spirit will go immediately into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of this age, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout the trumpet of God and the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Paul understands that at the time of his death, that his inner person, his soul, and his spirit will immediately translate to glory. That his body will be put into the grave. But that will not be the end of it. Because Christ wants it all. He wants not only our soul and our spirit to be immediately with him, but at the end of the age, he he wants even our body. And there will be a resurrection, and our body will be raised incorruptible. It'll be sown in corruption. It'll be raised incorruptible. Exactly. And that describes the fulfillment of all those things Paul is longing for in verse 10. It's the resur- If you experience the resurrection of the dead, then you will experience all those things Paul is longing to do, to know him, to the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of suffering, and be conformable to his death. That will not truly be experienced until the resurrection of the dead. That's the only way to understand this. Or if you make 10 sanctification and then you make 11, like, well, you've got to do these things in order. So you're not saved unless you experience those things, supposedly in verse 10, you're, you're then making salvation a salvation by works. You're like, no, no, no. The works prove you're saved. Well, now you're right back to just finding a, round, a roundabout way of saying it's not imputed righteousness. It's the presence of practical righteousness that proves I'm saved. Therefore, I, the, the imputed righteousness has to lead to an, an, uh, a practical righteousness or I'm not saved. So I'm not saved by an imputed righteousness. I'm saved by the presence of a practical righteousness, which is basically another form of Roman Catholicism. It will be sown as a perishable body. It will be raised as an imperishable body. And it will be in our glorified body. We will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. So as I bring this to conclusion, is this your testimony? Please note, he didn't even bother to try to fit. He didn't even really bother to explain verse 11. He didn't even, he didn't, he didn't even deal with the difficulty verse 11 presents. Verse 11 presents some problems. He didn't even, he didn't even deal with it. And he didn't even explain how verse 10 other works other than making an outlandish claim that we have some power to do everything God tells us to do uh, and ex- not explain how that doesn't work. He didn't explain any. He left us with no more an understanding of verse 10 and 11 than we started with. And that is unfortunate because it was an absolute brilliant exposition of verses 1 through 9. And everything fell apart in verses 10 through 11. But we are going to have to stop and we'll pick this up sometime this week as we continue our work on Philippians 3.10. I'll stop. I'm going to take a couple hours break. Then we'll be back because we have to finish before midnight. We have to. Our 30 scriptures and 30 days broadcast because we're on day 29 and we've not missed a day. So I will make sure unless something happens that we were back before the night is over to finish that study. So or to at least do the study for today and then tomorrow is the conclusion. So be looking for that. I'm gonna, I'm just, I don't have time to do anything else because we're already so late, but we'll stop. Email me newsif at yahoo.com if you have any questions. If you came into this late, you need to just go back to the beginning of this series to, to, to hear everything we've talked about in regards to Philippians 3.10 and the, uh, the 
X, the uh, interpretation we're giving to the text, and then you'll have a better understanding of any criticism that you just heard. All right, thank you for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.